0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, our scripture reading uh, this morning is again going to be Hebrews chapter 11 verses 23 through 28, Hebrews chapter 11 verses 23 through 28, if you're using one of the blue church Bibles you will find these verses on page 1008. Before we read together God's word, let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the ministry of his word here this morning. Father God, as we come before you, we come recognizing that it is by your word that we have been born again, and it is by your word that we now grow up in our salvation. And so we ask, Father, that you would nourish us by your word even here this morning, That through the ministry of your spirit, you would prepare our hearts to receive your truth. That you would cause it to be planted deep and to take root. And that you would even begin to bring forth its fruit in our lives. To the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. This is the very word of God. By faith, Moses By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That is the reading of God's word. In this passage we have four pictures of faith at work in the life of Moses pictures that we have been looking at over the course of the last several weeks and we have taken the time to look carefully at each of these portraits of faith because by them not only do we understand how faith operated in the life of Moses but by looking at these pictures of faith at work we better understand and are better equipped to actually imitate that faith to to walk in the footsteps of that faith in our particular circumstances The first snapshot is actually a a picture of the faith of Moses' parents when they hid him rather than obeying the king's edict that every child was to be cast into the Nile. And from this picture of faith we learned that faith clings to the Lord's anointed. It clings to the Lord's Redeemer regardless of the potential costs. The second is actually a picture from Moses' life proper. It is the faith that he showed when he chose to identify with God's people and to accept their mistreatment rather than continuing to enjoy the pleasures of living in Pharaoh's household. And from this picture we learn that faith believes it is better to be even a slave in the king's house than it is to be a prince elsewhere. The third of these pictures shows us Moses' faith when he left Egypt. As we saw last week, that that is either his faith when he left Egypt to go to Midian, or his faith when he led the people out of Egypt in the Exodus. But but either way, the, the picture shows us that faith overcomes our fear. Whether it is a fear of waiting on the Lord, or a fear of acting in obedience to His command. And so this morning we come to the fourth and final snapshot of faith from the life of Moses. The the faith that he showed, we're told, when he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And what we will see in this picture of Moses' faith, we will see that by faith we tremble at God's threats, but we rest in his promises. I can remember being told when I was in seminary that when you preach, you are trying to do two things at the same time. You are trying to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And it's hard to do both, but what we will see this morning is that God's word does both. And we must learn to receive both if we are to walk in the footsteps of faith. So let's begin with the threats. We see this in the mention of the destroyer, of the firstborn This is obviously a reference to the tenth and final plague that God used to, to bring His people up out of Exodus. I mean, up out of Egypt. as we saw uh, two weeks ago, Moses, Moses seemed to know, He seemed to know that, that he was God's chosen instrument, that He was the one who God had appointed to be the redeemer of His oppressed people. And I suspect that he was actually taught that by his mother, who, who saw him as beautiful when he was first born. He, he saw him as the beautiful one who would answer their prayers and would rescue them from the, the oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But as we saw last Sunday, Moses' first attempt to help his people didn't go so well. He ended up taking the life of an Egyptian uh, taskmaster and he he found himself out with both Pharaoh and the Israelite people. No longer could he go back to live in, in Pharaoh's house because he had sided with the slave people. But they were not ready to accept him because they did not yet trust him. They did not yet know who he was. And so he ended up without a place and he ended up fleeing to Midian to wait upon the Lord. But after waiting in Midian for 40 years, you'll remember that God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, a bush that burned but was not consumed. And from that bush, the Lord spoke to Moses, and the Lord told him that it was time to go back to Egypt. It was time to go back and do what he had been born to do. And the Lord sent Moses into the very presence of Pharaoh, And that encounter at the burning bush set in motion a contest between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. A contest that that played out over the course of of ten plagues. You'll you'll remember how the story unfolds. Moses comes into the presence of, of Pharaoh and he says, The Lord says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And then Moses shows Pharaoh who the Lord is by performing the, the plague that, that the Lord had assigned. The, the not water of the Nile turning to blood, frogs overrunning the land, gnats or, or flies, livestock dying, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. Nine plagues, nine plagues displays of God's power, nine displays of God's supremacy over the gods of Egypt. And each time, Pharaoh would cave and he would say, yes, I'll let the people go. Just stop the plague. But the moment he had relief, he would again harden his heart. And he would say, no, never mind. I'm not going to let the people go. Well, after that story had played out nine times through the course of nine plagues, God told Moses that there was going to be one final and decisive plague. There was going to be a tenth plague that would bring an end to the contest, that would definitively show God's supremacy. And so we read, beginning in, in Exodus chapter 11, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who was behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been nor will ever be again but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes the distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so the Lord speaks to Moses and tells him that there is going to be one final plague, one flag- plague that will finally bring Pharaoh decisively to his knees. And that plague will be the death of every firstborn in the land of Egypt. In previous generations, apologists felt compelled to defend the morality of such a plague. We, we instinctively recoil from the thought of, of God taking the life of every firstborn in the land. And I want you to know that we recoil rightly. It is horrible, it is a horrifying thought. But if it is so horrible, how does doing such a thing not make God a horrible monster? I mean, if Pharaoh was a monster for ordering the murder of every male child in Israel, and if centuries later Herod would prove himself to be a monster by by killing every baby born under two in Bethlehem, How is God not a monster for killing every firstborn in Egypt? It's a fair question. It's a difficult question. It's a question that deserves an answer. And the answer is found in the reality that God is God and Pharaoh is not. It's what the plagues were all about. The, the plagues prove that the Lord is the Lord, and that Pharaoh and his gods are but a fiction. God is God. Pharaoh is not. And therefore Pharaoh, nor any other man, has the right to take life on his own terms and for his own purposes. Life Belongs to God and to to God alone. The the prerogative of, of taking life belongs to no human being. But it does belong to God. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He alone has life in himself. All life is therefore contingent. All life is dependent upon Him. All life is from Him. All life is His gift. And think about what that means. If your life, if if your very existence is a gift from God, it means that your gift is a stewardship from him to be used for him. You are from God and you are for God. And therefore, when you use the life that you have been given against the one who has given it, He has every right to take away the life that he has entrusted to your care. When we assert ourselves as king, as our own rightful Lord, rather than serving him who is rightly king, we prove ourselves traitors and rebels against the only source of life, And therefore, we forfeit our lives. It is why the wages of sin is death. Life belongs to God and to Him alone. If you have life this morning, it is on loan from Him. It is His gift. And you are to use it on His behalf, in the service of His kingdom, to the praise of His glory. If you are using your life for any other purpose, you have long since forfeited your right to life. And furthermore, God has the right, as God, to execute your just judgment at any moment. At any moment, he can pour out his justice. It is only his great mercy that delays. But Peter tells us he is not slow to keep his promises as some count slowness. He is actually patient. According to his great mercy. He has graciously delayed our final judgment. Why? So that we might have an opportunity to repent. So that we might turn to him and be forgiven and saved. It's what the scriptures mean when they say that today is the day of salvation. The fact that we are still breathing. The fact that this world continues. The fact that the seasons continue to, to turn one after the other. These are all evidences of God's grace. Of his patience with the rebellious people as he gives us opportunity to repent. But there are those times in history, scattered throughout the generations, when he has allowed his judgment to break into the present so that we might tremble before him and not presume upon his kindness. And that's exactly what is going on here in the final plague. This is the inbreaking of God's final judgment. A judgment that is not exclusively deserved by the Egyptians. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But it is a judgment that is deserved by the Egyptians. And here, God allows that judgment to break into the present so that we might tremble. Before him. And so this morning I would suggest to you that what ought to amaze us about this tenth and and final plague is not that God would do such a horrible thing, but rather what ought to amaze us about this tenth and final plague is that God would be so merciful. We don't know ourselves, and so we struggle to see God's mercy. But when you look at what's going on here, what you you see is that God takes the life of the firstborn because the firstborn represents the whole. The firstfruits represented the entire harvest. The, The firstborn represented the entire family. And the death of the firstborn was a reminder that the entire nation deserved death. But in his great mercy, for now, he would take only the life of the firstborn. That those who were left might see and tremble at the coming wrath. I know that we struggle with this. I know that it's, it's hard. It's not just hard for those out here. It's, it's hard for us here this morning. We, we, we struggle with God's wrath. It is is hard for us to make peace with it. It is hard for us to to make sense of it. But but let me suggest to you that we struggle to accept God's wrath because we struggle to accept that He is God and we are not. We struggle to accept that He is Lord over all of creation. We, We struggle to accept that He is the rightful King. And that as traitors against Him, we justly deserve death. And so because apologists know that we struggle and that everyone struggles with this as the children of Adam and Eve, apologists have long tried to, to help people to see the, the morality of, of God's judgment. But I would suggest to you that today, and again not unique to today, but, but maybe more prominent today than in recent generations There is a second question that apologists must answer. Because, in my estimation, the preeminent problem in our day is that the world has is not the morality of God's judgment, but its reality. They they may still be appalled by the idea that that God would, would execute such judgment against the Egyptians, but they aren't too bothered by it because they don't believe it's true. People simply don't believe God will one day judge all men, holding them accountable for what they have have done. They, They may think that the God of the Old Testament Bible is a bloodthirsty God. But that's okay, because he's just a myth. If we believe that God is there, if we believe that he has spoken, if we believe that he is the true and living God, the maker of heaven and earth, then we must see his wrath for what it is. We must see his severity for what it is. We must not dismiss it as just yet another myth of the ancient world. And so in this day and age, when the reality of God's judgment is is generally disregarded as an unpleasant fiction, it is vital for us to see that faith believes God's threats. And because it believes God's threats, it trembles. See, God says clearly through his prophets and through his son that all men, without exception, are sinners. And that means that all men, without exception, are traitors against God's throne. All men have asserted themselves as the rightful lord of their own lives, rather than bowing to their rightful king. And therefore, all men, without exception, are justly subject to his holy wrath. A wrath that will one day be revealed in full. We don't much care for fire and brimstone speaking in this day and age. But we must. We must receive it. And not only must we receive it, but we must allow our hearts to tremble before the wrath of God. Because faith believes God's threats. And trembles before his holy wrath. It's exactly the faith that that Moses demonstrates in this passage. It's it's exactly the faith that, that allows Moses to keep the Passover. When God said that he was going to kill every firstborn in Egypt as a foreshadowing of his final judgment, Moses believed him. He took him at his word and he acted accordingly. And we must have that same faith today. We may not know when or where God will will next make his his judgment known in the the present. God hasn't sent us a prophet to to reveal it to us. And we should be wary of anyone who who speaks with certainty about where God is making his wrath known today. We should be wary of anyone who who claims to say that this or that is a particular manifestation of, of God's judgment. But we should know with certainty that he has appointed a day at the end of history when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And when that day comes, you won't miss it. It won't be secret. It will be like lightning flashing across the sky from one horizon to the other. When that day comes, we will know it. On that day, all men will be called to an account For the lives that they have lived in this day and age. And knowing that that day is coming is part of faith. Knowing that there is a day appointed when God's judgment will be poured out in full is part of faith. And so let me ask you this morning has the reality of God's future judgment shaped your present reality? Does it shape the way you live here and now, today? Or do you foolishly live today as if the threat of that day were nothing more than an unpleasant fiction? Scripture tells us it is the fool who says in his heart there is no God. It is the fool who lives as if judgment is not coming. And so if you have never trembled at the thought of God's coming wrath, then I hope to afflict you this morning. I hope that, that you will see and understand the coming judgment and you will tremble. I pray that the Spirit will strike real fear into your heart even this morning. And I would encourage you to pray the same. Pray for God to open your eyes to his own severity, that you might know him as he is, and not as you've imagined him to be. But if you know all too well what it is to tremble at the fear of God, if you know all too well what it is to to fearfully anticipate his coming judgment, then I pray that you will not stop with simply seeing his threats. For his threats are a goad meant to drive you to his promises. And so faith not only sees his threats, but it also rests in his promise. That's the second part of faith that we see here in Moses. Look again at what the author writes. He says in verse 28 that by faith he kept the passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. You see faith not only trembles but it but it clings to the promised savior. We see this in in Moses keeping the Passover. When God announced the final plague, he he said to the people, there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor shall ever be again, but not even a dog shall growl against my people. He promised that his people would be delivered. He, He promised that the destroyer would not touch them. That was God's promise. But the promise required a response. The promise had to be received with faith, and the faith that received the promise expressed itself in keeping the Passover. We read in Exodus chapter 12 that that Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood and and take that blood and and touch it to the lintel and to the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the house and strike you. When the destroyer sees the blood, he passes over that house. Those who come under the blood are safe because the Passover lamb has already died in their place. That is the faith that clings to the promise. And that is the faith that we must have today. And we have that faith today I come in under the blood of the Passover Lamb. You may remember that Jesus' final meal with his disciples was a Passover meal. He was explicit in the instructions: go and prepare the Passover. I have desired to celebrate this Passover with you. But he doesn't celebrate it merely as a Passover. It's not merely a remembrance of, of what God did. Jesus tells us plainly that it is now to be a remembrance of what he is about to do. We read in Matthew 26 that, that Jesus said, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my, uh, my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In doing this, Jesus redefines and repurposes the the Passover meal. No longer would that meal be simply a a memory and a celebration of what God had done for the people when they were slaves in Egypt, when he brought them out with a strong right arm. From now on, from that point forward, the people of God would feast together at the table in memory of what God had done through Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Through his body and blood, broken and shed on the cross at Calvary, we have been redeemed not just from slavery in Egypt, but from a slavery to sin that leads to death. And today we express the faith of Moses not only by trembling at the promise that one day his wrath will be poured out in full, but by coming under the blood so that that wrath will not be poured out on us, but rather so that wrath was already poured out in full on our Savior what we do when we come to this table when we eat this meal together we are actively taking part in the meal of Jesus death we are coming to the table to to act out our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done we are partaking of the the meal that the benefits of his death might be ours and that active coming to the table is what we are going to depict this morning as we come to the table in a new way. This morning, we're going to change things up a little bit. We, we normally celebrate the Lord's Supper here at Trinity by, by having the elders bring the elements to you, by serving you as you see And that imagery is important. When we serve you as you are seated in the pews, it represents and it reminds us that that this table is not about what we do, but what Christ has done for us. We receive what he offers. But this morning we are going to actively come to the table as an expression of our active faith, as an expression of our coming under the blood. And so we're going to invite you to, to come forward row by row and to eat at the table. As an expression of your faith in Jesus Christ, as an expression of the fact that you know his death is for you, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed, that you might be forgiven. Now, obviously, merely eating and drinking is not enough. These things are not magic, they, they don't work automatically. You must eat in faith. But know this faith eats. Faith comes to the table and feasts and coming to the table and eating the bread and the cup that the Lord has provided. Faith is nourished to grow up in its salvation. And so if you know what it is to tremble at God's wrath, I hope this morning you will tremble in faith. But I hope you won't stop there. I hope this morning that you will see that the same faith that takes God seriously when he threatens, takes him at his word when he promises. The faith that trembles at God's wrath should rest in his mercy. God has said that the one who receives and rests upon Jesus Christ for salvation, that one will never be put to shame. And if you believe that, then rest in that promise even this morning. Rest in him, for in him you are safe. One day the destroyer will come, but he will not touch you. If you are under the blood of the Passover lamb. And because such an absolute refuge is ours in Christ. That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Then let us believe it together. Father God, we come before you now humbly asking, humbly asking that you would give us eyes to see you in your glory, ears to hear your threats, a heart to tremble at your severity, but also a full comprehension of the mercy that is Ours in Christ. That we might rest secure and confident in Him. Father, do this work, we pray, by Your Spirit, through Your Word, and through this meal. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.